0: And it will prove the resurrection of Christ. And I was young back then.
1: (laughs) The point of that is to get the gospel out around the world. And God is helping us to do that. Today, we celebrate the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Before I begin reading from the Matthew account of this, I want to say that I believe in a literal, physical, bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And that Jesus bodily ascended into heaven. And from the passages that Ryan read it's clear that it's necessary for our faith. It's absolutely necessary that we believe in this resurrection. In fact, the Bible goes so far as to say that if Jesus is not raised from the dead we have no hope. And he not only that, uh, Paul says that we are, of all men, most to be pitied. Because here we are going to church, being religious, exercising uh, ourselves unto faith. Godliness, But if Christ is still in the grave, it would all be to no avail. But thank God that that's not the case. Jesus is risen from the dead. Turn with me to Matthew 27, beginning with verse 57. Matthew 27, beginning with verse 57. I'm going to begin with the story of Jesus' burial, so that we might see the great miracle of the resurrection in its full co- uh, context. And when it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus, and then Pilate ordered it to be given over to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had hewn out in the rock. And he rolled a large stone against the entrance of the tomb and went away. Arimathea was 22 miles northwest of Jerusalem. In the Old Testament, it was called Ramathaim, and it was the birthplace of Samuel. We know from the other Gospels that Joseph of Arimathea was a member of the Sanhedrin, which was this ruling body of people that ruled over the Jewish religious part of their life. The Romans ruled over the political part. But here, this Joseph, who was one of the Sanhedrin, had become a believer in Jesus Christ. As a whole, the Sanhedrin was working to have Jesus crucified and to make sure that he stayed in the tomb. But Joseph was one who believed in Jesus Christ and had put his faith in him, and so he asked for the body. Now, in the Old Testament, they were not allowed to allow a, a, a body to be left on a tree overnight. It says in Deuteronomy 21, verses 22 through 23, And if a man has committed a sin worthy of death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his corpse shall not hang all night on the tree, but you shall surely bury him on the same day. For he who is hanged is accursed of God, so that you do not defile your land, which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. So, Jesus was crucified on Friday and Joseph took the body and had him buried because the next day was Sabbath. Now it says in Isaiah 53 and verse 9, it's interesting how the Bible predicts many of the things that happened to Jesus Christ. And this is a profound prophecy that I think ought to be taken into consideration. Isaiah 53 and verse 9. His grave was assigned with wicked men, Yet he was with a rich man in his death, because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief, if he would render himself as a guilt offering. He will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. This thing's a little hot. Could you turn down the trim? Thank you. I want to shout a little bit, and I'm afraid to do it. Now, if we had Dan here, we wouldn't need a microphone. Dan is our uh, street evangelist. He'll be here Saturday sharing the gospel. And he uh, has a loud voice. Think about this. It says here that he was with a rich man in his death. And his grave was assigned with wicked men. So here in Isaiah 53, 9, we have a prophecy of Jesus crucified between two thieves. A wealthy man takes his body. This was predicted in the Old Testament we know that Jesus died for sins and it was God's plan it says in Isaiah 53:10 but the lord was pleased to crush him putting him to grief but notice verse 11 or verse the last part of verse 10 and verse 11 he will prolong his days And the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand, and as a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many. Notice that the Old Testament not only predicts the death of Jesus and predicts that it's a substitutionary death because he's crushed for the many, and the many are justified, but it predicts his resurrection, though the word resurrection is not used here because it says he's crushed, he dies, and he is put to death, and then the result of that, it says he will prolong his days. Well, how do you die and then prolong your days? Well, that would make no sense unless there is a resurrection. So the Old Testament looks forward and sees the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and even the fact that a rich man would be the one who would bring his body to a tomb. And so this is exactly what happened. Now, the tomb was hewn out in the rock. If you've been to Israel, you probably visited the garden tomb. How many have visited the garden tomb? Wasn't that amazing? That was was one of the finest moments in Israel for me was to see that. And we can't prove that that empty tomb is the very one that Jesus was in. We don't know that for a fact. But it's definitely the type of tomb that he was in. And it's it's a very interesting sight to be there. And so they literally dug into the side of a big rock and made a place for a body. And then there would be a channel, so to speak, with a flat round stone that could be rolled into it that would be heavy enough that it would be very difficult uh, unless you had a lot of men to move it. And so this was a sealed tomb in the side of a rock and there was a large boulder uh, that would been rolled down and across there, only it was probably flat on one side. Verse 20, 61. And Mary Magdalene was there, and the other Mary, sitting opposite the grave. Now on the next day, which is the one after the preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together with Pilate and said, Sir, we remember that when he was still alive, that deceiver said, After three days I'm to rise again. Therefore give orders for the grave to be made made secure until the third day, lest the disciples come and steal him away and say to the people, He has risen from the dead, and the last deception will be worse than the first. So here are the people who had witnessed the miracles, who saw him heal the sick, make the lame to walk, make the deaf to hear, make the blind to see, who changed water into wine, who walked on water, who cast out demons, who spoke the powerful words of God, who was attested from a, by God himself from a voice from heaven and who did so many things that it was absolutely unmistakable that this Jesus, whom they personally witnessed, was indeed the promised Christ, the Messiah. He did things that were predicted thousands of years earlier, things that were so supernatural they could not not have been concocted. And these hard-hearted religious leaders were so uh, blinded by their own sin that they choose to call Jesus a deceiver. And they knew that he had predicted his own resurrection. And this becomes, ironically, part of the evidence for the veracity of the claims of Christianity. Even Jesus' critics admit that he predicted his own resurrection. And why is that important? Well, it's it's one thing for somebody to say they'll be raised from the dead, but it's another thing for somebody to claim to be God incarnate claim to be the Messiah, and, and stake those claims on this fact, that if he is raised from the dead, then it's all true. And so if Jesus is still in the tomb, then he was a deceiver, as they say. But if he did rise from the dead, then, and had predicted his own resurrection, then he is truly God, and therefore ought to be believed. Now critics have looked at this And it's amazing in history, especially the last couple hundred years, how many scholarly critics have decided to refute the claims of Christianity by doing uh, research into the facts, the historical facts surrounding the resurrection of Christ, and after their research have become Christians. Morrison, who wrote Who Moved the Stone, is one example. Some have not become Christians, but actually admit that Jesus was raised from the dead. I think the most interesting is Pincus Lapid. A Jewish scholar who decided to study the claims of the resurrection in order to refute them. And when he finished his study, he became convinced that Jesus really was raised from the dead. It's the only thing that would account for all the facts. Now, he didn't convert to Christianity, oddly enough, but he does. He wrote a book saying he believed Jesus was really raised from the dead. Uh, we have a video of him, I think, in our library, if, if somebody didn't take it and not bring it back. I know we used to have one. So, the claim of the resurrection is central to the claims of Christ. Now the, the, the one after preparation would be Sabbath. And notice that the sticklers for the law, the chief priests and the Pharisees who are accusing Jesus of being a Sabbath breaker, they don't mind breaking Sabbath if it suited their fancy. They're not supposed to be uh, going into cahoots with the Gentiles on uh, Shabbat. But they don't seem to mind because the expediency is more important than their own scruples for which they uh, blame Jesus and claimed he was a Sabbath breaker. Here they break Sabbath, but they don't seem to uh, worry about that too much. Notice there were two Marys there, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary we know elsewhere, uh, Mary, the mother of uh, Joseph. Uh, she's called elsewhere. Verse 64 says this, Therefore give orders... For the grave to be made secure until the third day, lest the disciples come and steal him him away and say to the people, he has risen from the dead. Notice that um, they are concerned about Jesus vindicating his messianic claims, and they want to make sure it doesn't happen. They want to make sure he stays in that grave. They want that body in the grave, and they want it to stay there. One of the interesting things that have been done in historical research into the backgrounds of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is this. There is no early writer, either Jewish or Greek or Roman, who ever claimed to have identified a tomb containing the body of Jesus. In fact, even in the book of Acts, when the empty tomb was mentioned as evidence for the resurrection. There wasn't anybody there that doubted that, that the tomb was empty. There were people that doubted the resurrection, but they did not doubt that the tomb was empty. And so everybody, including the harsh critics of Christianity, admitted that the tomb was empty. Now why it was empty... There are various theories besides the resurrection of those. In one of them is that a disciple stole the body, and so that's the one that comes to the forefront here. I'll read to you something from church history where a hundred and some years later that that claim was still being made that the disciples stole the body. But there's a real problem with the claim that the disciples stole the body. Number one, the disciples had run away in fear. Did you know that? the disciples had run away in fear. Far from people who wanted to perpetuate their messianic beliefs by stealing a body and starting some new religion, their commitment was to Jesus Christ himself. And because their faith was not yet complete, when Jesus was crucified, they had fled. Therefore, they were hardly sitting around waiting to to conspire to steal a body. Secondly, the fact is that a stolen dead body cannot appear to 500 witnesses and speak to them and eat fish with them and bodily ascend into heaven. So you have a little problem with that one. A stolen body will just rot. It doesn't walk around and talk to people. And if it did, what would they do? Well, if it wasn't a real resurrection, they'd run away or they'd make a movie out of it. Uh, I hope you didn't see that movie. It's really bad. The dead people walk. It's not a good thing. And so the, the idea that the, a stolen body was floating around, but it's really not a plausible idea. Now, there's another idea that's been floated out there off and on, and it's called the swoon theory, that Jesus didn't really die. But that's been refuted so soundly that even the harsh atheistic criti- critics of Christianity do not bring up the swoon theory. It uh, has no validity whatsoever. So let's see what happens. Matthew 27, 65. Pilate said to them, you have a guard. Go, make it as secure as you know how. And they went and made the grave secure. And along with the guard, they set a seal on the stone. Now this seal would be a clay impression with the Roman imperial insignia. And it would be there Not because it was like a padlock. The stone itself was the thing that kept people from getting in there. The seal was to say that if you rob this grave, the authority of Rome is going to be after you. And so it wasn't that anybody couldn't cut the seal, it's that if they did, they're in big trouble because they're rebelling against the authority of the emperor and their life would be taken from them. So the seal was a seal of imperial authority to scare away grave robbers under the threat of severe punishment. And so they have a guard that's posted. They have a stone across the entrance of the tomb, and they have a royal seal, and that is as secure as they knew how to make it because they did not want any um, body coming out of that tomb. Let's go to the story of the resurrection, Matthew 28, beginning with verse 1. And they went and they made the grave secure along with the guard. They set a seal on a stone. Now after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, verse 1, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary the mother of james and joseph came to the grave and behold a severe earthquake had occurred for an angel of the lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it now the stone was not rolled away for jesus to get out but for the witnesses to see the empty tomb the stone would not have been able to hold jesus The word earthquake here is seismos. Have you ever heard of a seismograph? Well, it comes from the ancient Greek word seismos. That word is going to be important because it comes up again a couple of verses down. And so the first witnesses to the empty tomb and to the resurrected Christ turn out to be these women. Now that also weighs heavily in favor of the authenticity of this story. And let me explain why. I've read several books from people who had started out as critics and, and examined the evidence and became believers. And they said that one of the things that helped convince them that this was an authentic story was that it, the, the alternative to it being an authentic story is that it's a made-up story. Okay, the, uh, the, We know we've got the story. We have the Gospels. And they go way, way, way back in, in history. Uh, And uh, there are fragments and parts of them and citations of the Gospels from the first century or late, I mean, early second century uh, from like Francis Clement of Rome. So we have the Gospels way back close to the lifetime of the people that wrote them even into the lifetime they wrote them. So the the idea that the Gospels are authentic as far as having been written real early on is true. But what they may be is written by people who made up the story. So either they are written by people who are eyewitnesses of real events and have the right story, or they're made up and they didn't really happen. Now let's just take, for example, a theory that they were made up. Well, here's an interesting thing that would argue against them being made up stories the story itself says the disciples fled in fear. Now, if you're Matthew and you're going to make up a story, would you make up a story that made you to be a coward and women to be the heroes? That goes totally against human nature. And not to mention the fact that in that world, women were not given the same status that they are today. And, 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 uh, they were not. their testimony was not even admissible in either a Roman court or a Jewish one. So you had to have men to testify if you're going to have testimony, not women's testimony. And so why would Matthew purposely make up a story that makes himself to be a coward and the testimony in the mouth of people whose testimony was not given credibility? Why would he make that up? That wouldn't convince anybody in the first century. And so that ends up being really strong evidence that the only reason Matthew would have to write these things is because that's what happened. There's no real reasonable motivation for Matthew to make up this story because it makes him look bad and it it, uh, brings the first witnesses to be people whose testimony wouldn't even be allowed into a court at the time. So therefore, uh, critics who looked at this began to think, you know, That doesn't look to me like a made-up story. This looks very much like an authentic story of something that really happened, even though there's a supernatural element. In fact, it turns out that the only reason to not believe this event, this account of events, the only real reason to not believe it is if you have a prejudice against anything supernatural. If you have a bias that says there is no supernatural God, there is no creator, there's no mir- there are no miracles, and if you believe that, that's the only good reason to not believe this story, but it's not really a good reason. It's just prejudice. So they had an earthquake, and by the way, in the Bible, earthquakes accompanied great acts of God through the Old and New Testament. There had been an earthquake at the crucifixion, now there's one at the resurrection. And we have an angel. Angels began the book of Matthew by announcing God's great acts of salvation that were, on, that were coming and now an angel is here to announce the act of salvation that has happened. It says his appearance was like lightning and his garment as white as snow. And the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. Now the play on words is interesting because the word seismos earthquake is the same word used, root for the word used for shook in verse 4. So if you want to have a real literal translation, you could say the earth quaked and the guards quaked. They were shaking in their boots. They were scared to death. Seismal, size. And they shook for fear and became like dead men. And that's not a good thing when you're a guard. To be afraid. (laughs) I mean, you can't do your duty. And so these guards are not being very strong guards verse 5 and the angel, the angel answered and said to the woman do not be afraid for i know that you are looking for jesus who has been crucified testifying to the reality of his death verse 6 he is not here for he is risen just as he said come see the place where he was lying and go quickly tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead and behold he is going before you into galilee there you will see him behold i have told you in verse 6 where it says he has risen that's, here is a literal uh, translation. He was raised. It's in the passive in the Greek. And so the idea was that God raised him. He was raised as he said he would be. When did Jesus predict his own resurrection? Well, he did in Matthew many times. In Matthew 16, 21. From that time, Jesus Christ began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem And suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and be raised on the third day. And then it says in Matthew 17, starting with verse 22, While they were gathering together in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were deeply grieved. And then it says in Matthew 20. In verse 18, Behold, we are going to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be delivered into the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and will deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him. And on the third day he will be raised up. And so, yes, just as he said, he had told them many times that he would be be raised from the dead. But where were they? Though John made an appearance at the cross, It was just a short one, and as somebody mentioned Friday night, he had a job to do to take care of Jesus' mother. The rest had gone back to Galilee, had departed from Jerusalem. So the, the closest disciples to Jesus Christ were not there at the tomb expecting a resurrection. Some critics have said this. Well, they made up the resurrection just out of this strong desire to see something that really wasn't there. That they were so um, wanting this to be true that they just had this mass hallucination. And they thought they saw Jesus. Now that theory has been debunked so badly that the atheists dare not even bring it up because it doesn't hold any water. But let's look at the record. The Bible doesn't say that they were sitting there hoping to see a resurrected Christ. The Bible says they ran away in fear. They were sitting in Galilee in unbelief. They became believers in the resurrection when they actually saw the body of Jesus. And the one who doubted the most, Thomas, who wanted to touch him, and he he touched the wounds in his hands and in his side, worshiped God. Worship Jesus as God after he saw the evidence that Jesus was indeed raised from the dead. And so it was the resurrection that made the disciples believers, not their belief that made the resurrection. Does that make sense? And they departed quickly, the ladies did, from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to report it to his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and greeted them. they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. Jesus accepts worship. Somebody wrote me an email here this week who is one of our readers, and he says, I'm trying to contend with a man who claims that Jesus lost his deity when he was in his physical body, and that he was God before he came to earth, but not God while he was on the earth. And what evidence do you have that I can give to this guy to prove him wrong? That was the email. So I sent him back. I just was working on his sermon. I said, well, here's one right here. He accepts worship. If Jesus isn't God, if he's just a man when he's on the earth, why is he being worshiped? Because everywhere else in the Bible, when anything less than God is worshiped, even a glorious angel, the angel says, no, don't worship me. I'm just a fellow creature. And when they tried to worship Saul, I mean, Paul in, in Acts, he tore his clothes and said, men, don't do this. We're men of like nature as you are. But Jesus accepted worship. And here's another thing I said to that uh, in the email uh, to that man. I said, besides that, any theory that would ever say that Jesus gained deity or lost deity is false by definition. You, you don't need to know anything more than the fact that they made that claim to know that it's false. And here's why such a claim is always false. Because it, it is uh, proven false by the definition of deity. God is. Remember how God revealed himself to the Old Testament in a, a fiery, uh, the fiery, the burning bush to Moses? I am that I am. What did Jesus say in John chapter 8, verse 58? Before Abraham was, I am. That means continual existence. And we use this word, in it's theology, non-contingent. It's not a, a really a hard word. It means he's not dependent on anything outside of himself. Deity, by definition, is not contingent. It is. It is from all eternity, past and future. It can never cease to be and never become to be. It is. I am the great I am, he claims. And so some man comes along and says, Jesus was God. Now he's not God. They don't even understand the definition of the term God. They're false and blasphemous by definition. And that's what I wrote back in my email. So go tell them that. I don't know how they took it. But that also, by the way, refutes Mormonism. The claims they'll believe in the deity of Christ. Now they just say he didn't used to be God, but he became God. The old Arian heresy. So he accepts worship because he is God and he deserves worship and he always has deserved worship from all eternity. And next week, Ryan's going to show us Jesus in the Old Testament, right? At least he says he's going to. Verse 10 Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go, take my word to my brethren to leave for Galilee, and there they shall see me. Notice the compassion of our Lord Jesus Christ, notice his love. Rather than being angry that they'd fled in fear, rather than chiding them for being cowards, Jesus now calls them brethren. How did these unworthy sinners who had fled deserve to be called Jesus' brothers? And why now? Let me read to you from the book of Hebrews, starting with verse 11. What does it mean to be a brother of Jesus? Verse 11 of Hebrews 2. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Saying, I will proclaim my name to my brethren in the midst of the congregation, I will sing thy praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children whom God has given me. Since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might rend powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might deliver those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all of their lives. They had run out of fear of death because often when a religious leader was killed, they'd round up his closest associates and kill them too. And they knew that. And that's the fear. That's what caused Peter in fear to deny the Lord. But yet, his victory over death is going to deliver them from the fear of death. And then, because of his resurrection, therefore, they're sanctified and called brethren. It says in verse 17 of Hebrews 2, Therefore he had to be like, made like his brethren in all things, that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest and things pertaining to God. To make propitiation, which means satisfaction, for the sins of the people. Jesus became man, always retaining his deity. And he suffered on the cross and was raised from the dead. And after he's raised, he's calling his people brothers. They're brothers because his atoning death is justifying and sanctifying and bringing them into a family. It says in Romans 8, 29, For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. So Jesus is the firstborn from the dead, the first fruits from the grave. And now he's going to call together brothers. Let's return now to the story of the soldiers, because they're important in Matthew's narrative. Verse 11. Now, while they were on their way, behold, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all that had happened. And when they had assembled with the elders and council together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers and said, You are to say, quote, His disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. Wow. How much money does it take to admit you are an incompetent guard? <laughs> I admit I was asleep at the switch. When you're a guard, your job is to stay awake, not fall asleep. But these guys were willing to take money, and there's money behind this several times. Judas was paid to betray Jesus, and now the guards are paid to lie. Notice the callousness in the hearts of the leaders. Because they had every reason to believe that Jesus was really raised, because they had witnesses who came and told them, the guards, And rather than acknowledge the truth, they chose to pay somebody to lie about it. Why were they lost? Because their own pride, their own desire for power, and their own envy was more important to them than coming to know God. They had every reason to put their faith in Jesus Christ because they knew he was raised from the dead. But they rather created this Lie, And this lie existed on into history that the disciples stole the body. Justin's dialogue with Trifo, a Jew, took place in 135, right after the second destruction of Jerusalem. It was written in 155, just before Justin was martyred. And I want to read to you what Justin said to this Jewish person concerning the issue of the resurrection and what they had been saying quote Justin Martyr 155 AD the conversation took place 135 and though <coughs> quote all and though all the men of your nation knew the incidents in the life of Jonah and through Christ and though Christ said amongst you that he would give the sign of Jonah exhorting you to repent of your wicked deeds at least after he rose again from the dead And to mourn before God as did the Ninevites, in order that your nation and city might not be taken and destroyed as they have been destroyed, yet you not only have not repented after you learned that he rose from the dead, but as I said to you before, have sent chosen and ordained men throughout the world to proclaim that a godless godless and lawless heresy had sprung from one Jesus, a Galilean deceiver whom we crucified, but his disciples stole him by night from the tomb where he was laid when unfastened from the cross and now deceived men by asserting that he was risen from the dead and ascended to heaven. This is what they were saying. Moreover, you accuse him, that is Jesus, of having taught these godless and lawless and unholy doctrines which you mentioned to the condemnation of those who confess him to be Christ and a teacher from and a son of God. Besides this, even when your city is captured and your land ravaged, you do not repent, but there are utter imprecations on him. Now, Justin's referring to some things that were added to the synagogue services that that put a curse on Christians. So in Jewish synagogue services, they were cursing Christians in the first century. But some have read this and said, well, Justin is anti-Semitic. No, he's not. Justin loves the Jews enough to tell them the truth about Jesus, who was raised from the dead. I'll show you that Justin's not anti-Semitic. Listen on. Besides this, even when your city is captured and your land ravaged, you do not repent, but dare utter imprecation. You know what that is? That's when you ask God to get somebody. Like, you know, you pray that God would destroy your enemies. Okay, that's an imprecation. Dare utter imprecations on him, and all will believe in him. Now here's what Justin says. Yet we do not hate you or those who by your means have conceived such prejudices against us. But we pray that even now all of you may repent and obtain mercy from God, the compassionate and long-suffering Father of all. He says, we pray for you. We don't hate you, even though you curse us in your synagogues and say that we stole away a body and started a deception. Now, these disciples who supposedly stole a body and started a deception... When they were brought before Roman authorities and they were told that all they had to do was deny that Jesus was Lord and spare their own lives, these men, supposedly deceivers, were willing to die in hopes of the resurrection from the dead. They didn't die for their deception. They died for the truth. Because had they hoped in this world only, there would have been no reason to die. Because a man who's still dead is no threat to judge those who who don't confess him. But the resurrected Christ is Lord and Savior, and he's coming again. Now, what about these soldiers as we conclude here? I want to give you an option today. You can be like the ladies at the tomb, or you can be like the soldiers. The soldiers knew the facts. The soldiers saw the resurrection before anybody else. The soldiers were uh, witnesses of the resurrection. The soldiers were there and saw exactly what happened. And what did they do? They took money to lie about it. These are Roman soldiers, by the way, so the the Romans are implicated. Then, what happened with the ladies who went to find a body? They didn't go there expecting to find a resurrected Christ, did they? Think about it. They came there expecting to find a dead body, instead they found an angel. So, what happened? They became believers. What happened to the soldiers? They became hardened. This morning, I proclaim to you the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I believe that God loves all people. I believe he loves you. And this resurrection is not for Greeks, it's not for Romans, it's not just for Jews. It's for all people in all nations everywhere to come to faith in Jesus. Have you put your faith in Jesus Christ today? Will you believe in the one whom God raised from the dead? He loves you, but you must trust him. Turn your life over to him. You will see the mercy of God revealed through his forgiveness and the blood atonement that will wash your sins. Jesus wants to cleanse us from the inside out. Jesus wants to remove all of our sins. And he wants to wash us white as snow. And he wants to give us the assurance of salvation. He wants us to be assured that we can be his brothers and his sisters. And that we'll be a part of this family. And that one day when he comes again, we'll be raised also and we'll be made like him and we conformed conform to his image. Have you put your faith totally and completely in Jesus Christ? If you have not, today, make that commitment. Say, Jesus Christ, I believe that you've been raised from the dead. I can't trust me. I know I've sinned. I know I've failed you in many ways. But I know that you are a merciful and gracious and compassionate God. And I believe that you'll forgive me. Come into my life. I turn myself over to you. I need you. I can't solve my own problems. And if you mean that, and if you put your faith in Jesus, and your repent and turn to him, you will be saved. And he will assure you of salvation, and you'll be justified and righteous just because of God's great justifying work through faith. And I pray that this Easter, as it's called nowadays, would become one of the greatest days in your life that you'll remember forever and ever. As you look back on this day, and you remember that this day In the year 2003, Jesus Christ came into my life. And I pray that that would be true for you if you haven't yet believed on Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your kindness and your goodness and your mercy. And dear Lord, we don't believe that we're worthy of anything, we don't believe that we've earned anything. And we don't believe that we're any different either from those disciples who fled in fear or from those soldiers who took money or from those high priests who were hard-hearted or from any of these people. Lord, but by the grace of God, there go we. And we're just as wicked, just as sinful, just as rebellious, and just as um, liable to punishment as any wicked person has ever lived on the face of the earth. But for your grace and your mercy. And dear Lord, have mercy on us. Wash away our sins. Help us to continue to trust you day by day by day because of your great love. We thank you, Lord, for everything you've done, and we do believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.
2: Wow. Thank you, Bob. We're glad to get you in whatever decade we can. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> praise God. <clears throat> Thank you. You know, does anybody want to comment? or We just thought we'd open it up to, to some discussion. I took a bunch of notes to kind of fo- follow the flow here. Does anybody have anything that kind of stood out? Yeah. I'm sorry. Um, I'll bring the mic over. I'll start with you. You're okay. Great. All right. Um,
3: Bob? Mentioned the deity, deity of Christ. You know, a Christ uh, has had, had deity, and I know that uh, one of the uh, apologetic issues that comes up with the deity of Christ with the Muslims is they will use Matthew twenty four thirty six, where Jesus says uh, it's not not for the even the Son or the angels to know the time when the kingdom would be returned, and they say if Christ is in fact God. He's either lying or he's not God, you know, so how do we reconcile that with, you know, with with full deity, you know, um, kind of a big one, I guess, but I'm sure you got the answer.
2: Yeah, Yeah, you know, um, one thing that we try to make a distinction in (coughs) when it comes to theology proper with Christ is remember he has two natures. And so his two natures, he's truly man and he's truly God. And so, yes, those two natures belong to one individual, and we can distinguish between the natures, but we never separate them. Now, what's happening, though, and the reason I mention this is think about Jesus when he's in the back of the boat and he's asleep, and the disciples are scared they're going to perish because of the storm. And so here, does God ever get sleepy? I mean, does God ever sleep? Well, of course not. God doesn't get sleepy, but he's really a man, too, And so there you see his humanity on display. He's really a man. He's really tired. But in the next moment, he operates from his other nature, and he can calm the sea. And so what we claim is that Jesus in his one person can operate through either nature. And so on the one hand, you can say he knows all things. On the other hand, he can say, where have you laid her as a human? And we're not saying that there's a contradiction because he can appeal to either nature he can be tired, or he can raise himself from the dead. And uh, so the, the helpful hint for me is when we distinguish between the natures, we're not separating. If I separate your nature, I've killed you, as R.C. Sproul always said. So you and I have two natures. We have a, a physical nature, right, and we have an immaterial nature. And we can distinguish between the two, but we can't separate them. If I've separated them, I've killed myself. In the same way, we have to distinguish between cho- Jesus' two natures, but we can never separate them. It's always in one person, but He can operate through either nature. And so, therefore, it's no contradiction to say that Christ is truly in His humanity, operating from that nature. Um, there, there would be no contradiction at all. So, I hope that helps. Okay. So He wouldn't
3: be lying because He's using the nature, His 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 human nature, but He says, "I don't know," yeah. right? In his humanity. So, um, um, also, does Philippians two and five come into play when when he uh, um, you know does not consider you know uh, equality with God to be something? So, uh,
2: that's where we get into. uh, There's a theory called the kenosis theory. Anybody ever heard of the kenosis theory? I know Bob obviously has. um, And I, yeah. Yeah, Bob has written against it, rightly so. The kenosis theory comes from a term in Greek, in Philippians 2, the term emptied. Um, in fact, let's see, Where let me get my Bible here. How much time? do Oh, we got 10 minutes. we got plenty of time. Philippians chapter 2. Let me just turn to it here. Yeah, here it is. Um let's just start in verse five two five. Notice the command here by Paul. He says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Now, does everyone see the term humbled himself? I believe that in the Greek, I don't have my Greek text with me, but the, yeah, that... Yeah, there's the term for kenosis. He emptied himself. And so what German theologians did in the 1800s is that he claimed that Jesus here was emptying himself of his divine attributes. But notice, first of all, the command there in verse 5 of Philippians 2. The command is to humble yourself. Well, if you and I humble ourselves, do we empty ourselves of our human attributes? Well, of course not. We don't. We don't just because we humble ourselves. We don't lose our human attributes. I'm still everybody as human as I was before I was humble. Just an easier person to get along with. In the same way, Jesus Christ isn't divesting himself of his divine attributes merely because he humbled himself. It's a reading into the text what isn't there. So what we would maintain is that the kenosis theory is false. It's an attack on the deity of Christ. And what we can affirm <clears throat> is Jesus Christ has always been God. He existed as the Son, as God, but when he in the incarnation he comes in human form. So truly man, truly God. And so in no way does he divest himself of his divine attributes. So hope that helps. Yeah. Yep. But that's the Kenosis doctrine. Again, German theologians, anything bad usually comes from Germany. <laughs> For some reason don't Yeah, so I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. You know, it's kind of, just to touch
4: on that, um, it's like, you know, we don't always assert our rights, you know, and, and that's the kind of in the idea. The the only thing I was going to add is that, you know, n- not to the question that Mike asked, but, um, you know, when you talk to people who really don't want to believe, you know, th- there's so much evidence for both the resurrection and the the deity of Jesus Christ, it's it's the prophecies in the Old Testament. It's just it, there's just an enormous amount of it, and and it's you don't even need to just take one thing. It's just the evidence is just piled one thing on another. And so, if a person really wants to have an open mind and, and will listen comprehensively, there's just there's just no way that you can not believe you have to really willfully not want to you know
0: that's right. that's
4: you yeah exactly. yeah. That's right.
3: yeah he touched on the fact that they just don't want to accept the supernatural that's their bias and their prejudice and that if you're not going to believe in the supernatural you're not going to believe
2: yeah yeah, yeah there's a syllogism um the, the atheists have supernatural things can occur premise 1 premise 2 the resurrection is supernatural conclusion therefore the resurrection can occur so that's one of the reasons we do apologetics is to show that the supernatural does indeed exist and therefore the resurrection can happen
5: the, the one compelling fact that, that to me gives the light to this idea that the disciples stole the body is the guards say that they were asleep and the disciples stole the body well, if they were asleep, how do they know the disciples told about it? Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of holes in the argument. Right, well said, Dana. Excellent, yes.
5: I remember when Bob preached that, and let me just say to you, Bob, your messages never get old. Only we do. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, But one thing I find fascinating is just before the turn of the new year, I heard the latest poll come out, 64% of self-proclaimed Christian pastors don't believe in the resurrection. So when you look back to 2003, uh, that that percentage, I I don't know exactly what it was, but it it was less than that. So... uh, and that's not even to mention the percentage of self-proclaimed pastors that don't believe in the virgin birth and other uh, Christian doctrine uh, that we that we hold dear. So it's uh, interesting to 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 look at the truth of God's word and then see what's actually spreading through Satan's lies with all the deception.
2: Yeah, well said. I get it. Yeah, sorry. Thanks. That's excellent. Hey, you know what I thought of too, Bob, is you were talking about how the initial story was that the disciples stole the body. And, you know, that story changes too. And, um there's a writing called Toledoth Yeshua. Toledoth is the phrase in Hebrew, generation. You'll see it in Genesis, the Toledoth of this, the Toledoth of that. It's the generations. Well, the Toledoth Yeshua is a Talmudic writing where many, many, many years later, the story changes where the Jews claimed that a gardener stole the body so isn't it interesting it was the disciples and then hundreds of years later all of a sudden well maybe it was the gardener who stole the body and any police officer that you talk to if they take witnesses at a scene they'll separate them and they'll say who's, they'll look at whose story is most consistent and remains consistent and they'll say they're telling the truth well whose story was consistent the Christians or the, the believers in Christ or the non-believers well of course it's the believers so something to think about um, anything else was wonderful evidence Bob I loved it and you know um, name that book again that you had talked about who Pinkus re-
0: oh Pink- well, say it again here Pincus Lapid interestingly he was a Jewish scholar who studied these things and came to the conclusion that Jesus was raised but he didn't convert he decided he was just for the Gentiles and uh, and the guy um, uh, Morrison, who moved, uh, who moved the stone, who moved the stone, and that was 1905. He was a lawyer who was a critic and decided to study all these things to, do, to refute Christianity, and he studied the gospel of Mark because that was the primary gospel, and after all of his study, he became a Christian. And believe that Jesus was raised, and he wrote a book called "Who Moved the Stone?" is still in print hundred and ten years later he's even older than me <laughs> <laughs> oh,
2: well. well thanks bob that's those are great resources. Anybody else have we got a few minutes left? yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh,
4: just this is just a you know for what it's worth type thing since we've got a little bit of time. there's a guy that I know out in Buffalo who is a teaches biblical Hebrew and he's a, a doctor of theology. He's a good guy he's, we, he, we've taken some classes from him, and he has quite an extensive library, as you might imagine, and as I recall, he has seen and looked at the Talmud he will not, he will not own the Talmud and have it in his home there's so much that is so offensive to to Christi- to him uh, just he's a he's a gentle spirited fellow you know it's just so offensive to him that he uh the things that they say in the talmud uh, are just apparently very offensive so
2: yeah he's upset with the religious leaders isn't he yeah, yeah, yep. He's upset with the religious leaders. Yeah, and the the Babylonian Talmud that comes about much later develops later. It does show a progression of hatred towards Christ and many of the the doctrines and things that are taught in it. So absolutely, yeah. Um, you know, one thing I thought was interesting, Bob, too, is you focused on the empty tomb, and the empty tomb is one of the I think to me the biggest reasons why anyone should believe in the resurrection. And you really pointed that out and. One of the passages that really points to this, too, is that Acts 2, where Peter's preaching at Pentecost, and he says, look, if Psalm 1610 is about David, well, David's still in the tomb, and he's rotting it up, and everybody knew that. They could go to the tomb and say, yeah, he's he's still there. And you pointed out, no one could go to Jesus' tomb, and uh, I thought that was very astute. No one could ever go to the tomb and take his bones and say, well, here he is. If they could, that'd be the end of Christianity, and so it's it's very devastating. Yeah. Uh yeah, well said. Now, anybody else? Um I tell you now next week we're going to get in back into the book of Acts. Um Lord Willing, of course, with the voice and uh and then Bob what I'll do is I'm going to be doing two sermons in Romans and then Bob's going to be getting back to uh 1 John in the sermon rotation. So we're just trying to rest up the voice and it was fun to fun to see those days, Bob, but uh but uh you're you're actually even better now. We just got to get your voice healed up. So that was that was excellent, excellent, excellent. So well, let's close in prayer, and uh, let's pray for our teacher Bob. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you so much for the truth of the resurrection, and I thank you for Bob who's preached it for so many years. I thank you for my brothers and sisters here who believe it and proclaim it, and are witnesses to those who are perishing. Lord, we pray that this year the resurrection would be on our mind and on our lips that we would proclaim Christ crucified for sins and raised from the dead for eternal life. I pray for our teacher, Bob, Lord. I pray, Heavenly Father, you'd heal him and give him his voice back and uh, give him the desires of his heart to preach your word. I pray for my brothers and sisters here, that you'd give them stamina, too, for this new year, that you'd keep them and protect them. We pray for a wonderful day as we celebrate your word and what you are, who you are, and what you've done for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.